Hey everyone, thanks for joining this episode of For Your Benefits. My name is Julia Peebles, Events Manager for Century Health, creators of Well On My Way, one of the industry's leading employee health and wellness solutions. We recently hosted a webinar with Jennifer Hunter from Invitals. She discussed mental health and COVID-19 and how to take a proactive approach to supporting employees. It was such great information and we wanted to share it on our podcast as well. Jennifer is the founder and CEO at Invitals and is a national recognized behavioral health expert. Invitals, a Century Health partner, is transforming the way behavioral health care is delivered, shifting from reactive behavioral health to a proactive emotional health model. They empower employees to understand their emotional health while educating and motivating them toward care. So without further ado, here it is. Thanks everyone for being here today. The goal of the conversation for me is really to offer you what I hope is um, helpful and actionable information as all of you lead your teams, continue to support your populations in this uh, just remarkable time. Um, As Megan mentioned, um, I'm a behavioral health specialist. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist by training. Um, And just to share with you a little bit about my background, um, I haven't done kind of that important therapy work in many years. I've I've really been focused on how to promote employee well-being and achieve prevention um, in mental health across large employee populations for about the last 15 years. And so I look forward to sharing with you what is really my life's work around how is it that we can improve the standard of care in mental health and how can we work together to really combat this issue? You know, at M Vitals, we were certainly focused on employee emotional health before the COVID pan- pandemic showed up. And, and I think what's really important to understand about where we were as a society when the pandemic hit is that we were really grappling and waking up to the mental health crisis that we were experiencing. Um, Mental health conditions are the most costly medical conditions in the world. They're more than cancer and diabetes combined. And people often ask me, why is that? Why are they so expensive? One of the reasons is the high rates of prevalence. The reality is is that one in five people will experience a mental health condition um, every year, and 50% of people will experience um, severe uh, symptoms of mental health, perhaps not a condition, over the course of their lifetime. One of the things that we're really focused on at MVitals is a couple of statistics, and one is the fact that people who are actively symptomatic wait 11 years before receiving care. Um, and, and, you know, I, I have to say, I certainly experienced this as a therapist. Um, people would show up in my office, um, and the reason they were there is because they had tried everything they could think of, and they just couldn't take it anymore. It was really their last attempt at trying to manage um, what had, for them, had become completely unmanageable in their lives. Uh, and, and so how is it that together we can really shorten that journey um, to care? Um, What I think is also remarkable about uh, mental health is that 57% of people who need care simply never receive care. And so this was kind of the state of affairs uh, when COVID hit. The other thing that I think is an important uh, bit of information to to think about is that employers are the largest purchasers of behavioral health care in the world. Um, And uh, mental uh, health care expenditures increased 
um, 58% over the 10 years previous um, to this year. And yet a small fraction of those were spent on mental health care. And so we, we really have kind of this um, system in place that is fragmented, difficult to access. There's, there's barriers to care, which I'll talk about in detail today. And in the midst of that, the pandemic um, uh, showed up in our lives. And I've been doing, I, I was looking back at my calendar and I think the first mental health and COVID-19 um, uh, presentation that I did was around April 14th. And at that time we had no idea certainly where we would be today with this pandemic. And as the secondary um, uh, uh, consequences of COVID-19 emerge, mental health is front and center in that crisis. Um, the CDC has really been tracking mental health symptoms um, across, across the country since COVID-19 has hit. And COVID-19 has really served to accelerate and intensify um, mental health risk in our in our country. And the reality is, is that we had a lot of people who were at risk um, coming into the crisis. Uh, and, and so many of them have really um, experienced an intensification of the of their symptoms um, and, and of the need for care. Meanwhile, we have new workforces um, sitting at home, you know, really working engaging in medical care um, in ways they've never had, perhaps remotely. Um, and what, what we know is that about 59% of employees simply don't know how to access mental health resources from home. And I know that many of you on the phone today have been doing, uh, I'm sure, really important work around awareness and communication. So hopefully we'll be able to help offer you some, some additional strategies there. And my conversations around the consequences of the pandemic have certainly um, grown more serious. What's critically important to understand is that as this pandemic goes on, as it has become this protracted um, circumstance and, and in global impact in our lives, is that, is that stress and trauma is additive and cumulative. And what the, CD, what the World Health Organization is projecting at this point is that there'll be 8,000 additional suicides this year due just to the economic effects um, of the COVID pandemic. Uh, and you know, so, so I think that when we talk about a proactive approach to employee emotional health, it's critically important to understand that early detection connection to high quality care saves lives. And so how is it we can work together to make sure that that, that, that occurs for, for so many people who are, um, you know, who have perhaps kept their head above water um, the, the first several months of the pandemic, um, but are, you know, continuing to um, uh, work to meet the challenges of this pandemic and care for their families and continue their work. Um, the, the, um, cost of the pandemic around mental health certainly grows more serious um, every day, certainly. Um, and, you know, I think that when we work with employers and we begin to talk about, okay, how is it we can really move the needle on employee mental health? Um, how is it that we can find people sooner? We can connect them to the right care and resources. We begin to talk about the barriers of care. We talk about issues like awareness. We talk about access. What is the time to first appointment in your in your outpatient mental health um, mental health um, uh, panel? Um, are there cost barriers? But what's critically important to understand is that really 
um, stigma has really driven where we are as um, a, a society. And, and the lack of attention that we've spent with men, around mental health, the fragmented reactive mental health care system that we have in place, the don't ask, don't tell approach to mental health that we used for so many years, um, all of that is, is, is driven by stigma. And so we really do have to address this issue of stigma um, uh, in the workplace. And oftentimes when we talk about stigma, we're really talking about people who have a diagnosed mental health condition and how is it that we can help them get the care that they need and, and um, not experience stigma around having a mental health condition. I think what's important to understand is that yes, there's that societal stigma, but the stigma that we really have to overcome is self-stigma. It's what people say to themselves when they begin experiencing these symptoms and these challenges. How is it we can help people feel empowered um, and, uh, and uh, activate them toward care and resources sooner and not ashamed of what it is they're going through? And that's really where culture comes in. Um, and you know, we see the consequences of, the, of reactive mental health benefits the frustration that employers often have around the fact that their benefits are underutilized, even if they feel like they have best-in-class mental health benefits, they have such a difficult time breaking through that 4% utilization barrier in their employee assistance program, 8% utilization barrier. Why is it, they say to me, that I have so many employees who are struggling and yet they're not connecting to the resources that we have in place? Um, and we see this in real time across our book of business. 52% of MVITALS members are at moderate, high, or severe risk for a highly treatable mental health condition. Um, and 75% of our members who are at risk have simply never engaged in care. People wait too long um, or they simply opt to never engage in care. And that's why we believe that the answer to reactive-based, sometimes I refer to it as symptoms-based mental health, is a proactive whole population model. And that you as employers are in a unique position to educate and motivate your, your workforce, um, the family members of your workforce toward pro what we call proactive emotional health. Um, and we, we believe that there's really a simple pathway to personalized care. And one of those is, is consistent proactive outreach and building a culture that values early intervention. I'm gonna break each of these elements down and, and hopefully offer you some great strategies in a moment. Um, but I was speaking to a leader of a large healthcare organization earlier this week. And he said, you know, John, you know, apps are great. Uh, meditation apps are great. Having, you know, technology and having the EAP is great but nothing replaces someone going up to one of our nurses and asking, how are you doing today? And leaders and managers really owning um, and supporting the emotional health of their employees. And so how do we build that culture where emotional health is valued and that mental health is a safe topic to discuss at work? Um, and, and next is really helping people to understand their emotional health, early detection. Um, emotional health literacy in our country is, is incredibly low. People really don't understand why they're having, this, these, having symptoms of depression and or anxiety, for example. They're not sure where to go and get help, and they're not sure how to strengthen their own emotional health. So what are those early warning signals of mental health? How do we help 
people understand that they're, they really need to strengthen their emotional health because they're on a path toward a mental health condition? How do we help people really activate toward care who need care? Um, and then one thing that uh, we, we talk very little bit about when we're discussing mental health, and that's the idea of precision mental health care. Um, you know, it, it's great to have a meditation app and to offer that to your employee population, for example. Um, but how is it that you help employees understand the right level of care for them? And not just the right level of care, but the right mode of care. And so how do we achieve precision mental health? Um, when someone breaks a bone, they don't go to a surgeon. <laughs> you know, they go to an osteo specialist. Um, and with mental health, when, when someone's um, identified with depression or anxiety, they're often told, go to therapy. Well, wh which type of therapy? What would be the best type of therapist for me? Um, and, and so how is it that we really help people understand right away the correct level of care and the type of care that would work best for them? <clears throat> and just to talk a little bit more about proactive outreach, um, what I found over the course of my career is that if you call it a mental health benefit, people don't use it until they're in crisis. And so how do we speak more broadly about mental health? How do we make it a part of the culture and make it a part of professional development, for example, make it a person strategy? And how do we educate and normalize um, support-seeking behaviors? Um, we believe senior leadership is critical in giving people permission to discuss mental health and access care, certainly. And the way to dismantle self-stigma is through consistent, empowering, empathic communication all year. Uh, how, how do we really bust through the, the, that stigma barrier? Um, we, talk a, we, we, we talk a lot about communicating to age and wage, the way that people perceive their emotional health, what they value, what they see as, as a problem or not a problem is very much connected to their age and their wage. There, there really is nowhere else in healthcare where there is such a mass misappropriation of resources. Those people who need mental health care most sim oftentimes simply don't access it. When, you, when, we, when we look at data on mental health utilization across employee populations, invariably it is the lowest wage workers who simply don't connect to mental health care at all. And so how is it we communicate to those individuals and, and help them get the care that they need? Um, and considering a population level screening, um, to identify and connect at-risk in, um, individuals, it's really difficult for us to manage what it is we don't measure. Um, and how do we help, how do we empower individuals with their own emotional health data? Um, critically important. Um, and just talking about quality care, um, we, we talk a lot about barriers to care. We don't often talk about quality care when we're talking about mental health care. Um, how do you know that the benefits that you have in place, that you've invested for your employees, how do you know the quality and the performance of those investments? And so, you know, certainly we work with employers who have best-in-class employee assistance programs, and oftentimes we facilitate increased utilization. We drive individuals to that benefit. But it's also important to know what is the time to first appointment? Um, are people satisfied with the clinicians that they're getting connected to? And most critical is that are people getting better? 
are they receiving good care? And so as you look at your behavioral health strategy, um, you know, really as, you know, as, as purchasers, um, insisting on outcomes data, insisting on performance data. Um, and uh, one thing that's really important to understand is that 88% of psychotropics are prescribed by a primary care physician. And so are the primary care practices that your employees accessing, are they practicing what's called behavioral health integration? Are they measuring for risk? Are they measuring whether care is, is, is actually effective? Um, and then looking at outpatient behavioral health, telehealth, making sure that you've really closed the gaps and that people can access care. Um, certainly cost is a barrier and, and, and something that we often um, you know, help employer, employers create benefits so that cost isn't a barrier as well. One of the things that, um, last things I wanna talk about is these early warning signals of mental health. How do we detect risk early and how do we help individuals understand early um, what it is that might be driving their symptoms? And at Envitals, we really believe in a higher standard of measurement a measurement that really takes in the dynamic factors that make up of our make up our emotional health, psychological, physiological, interpersonal. And so helping people to very quickly know, am I at risk for a common mental health condition um, or am I experiencing low emotional health? And if I am, what are the drivers of those symptoms? Why am I experiencing those? Um, we have a unique profile that we call social determinants of emotional health. Um, you know, uh, number one reason why people entered um, counseling prior to 2008 was family and marital conflict. Nothing stresses us out most to be more than to be in conflict with the people um, that we love and are closest to us in our lives. In 2008, um, certainly financial crisis um, took the lead there. And so really understanding across the population, what are the social determinants that are driving people into care and how do we support them? And then looking at overall well-being, a person's ability to manage their day-to-day -day lives um, and, and um, uh, um, how well are they sleeping, those things that we know are really protective factors in emotional health. Um, and then looking as well at health and health behaviors. Um, one, just one quick example I'll give, I'll give there is that employees, uh, diabetics have a comorbid uh, rate of depression at 30%. So 30% of diabetics have a comorbid depression. 85% of them are not identified and not treated. We know that has a direct impact on their ability to manage their insulin and the likelihood that they're going to go out on disability um, for things like macular degeneration. So helping people understand the dynamic interaction between their chronic condition and their emotional health. Um, and then lastly, just want to talk about um, really what people are experiencing in the context of this pandemic. When we talk about a higher standard of measurement, it's important that we're measuring for the right thing. And um, you know, if all of us had taken a stress measure at the beginning of the year and taken it now, we would likely be more stressed. The pandemic has had a universal impact um, uh, on, 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 uh, across the board. The question that we would want to answer in any population is that who is at uh, what we call a, in a state of pathogenic stress? And, and we call that stress overload. Um, and COVID-19 is really a perfect storm 
when it comes to risk for mental health conditions and for what we call stress overload. And stress overload is a state in which an individual feels that the demands, um, the life events that they're experiencing far exceed their resources, that they don't have the internal or external resources to cope with what's occurring. Um, and that really describes what, what the majority of people have experienced with COVID-19. I don't have enough information to keep my family safe. Um, I, I've lost my job. I don't have enough money. Um, uh, the, the chronic inescapable um, stress, the chronic social isolation, um, the, the financial crisis and job loss that so many people have experienced um, ha have really created this environment of and, and high risk for this pathogenic stress, which was called stress overload. Um, and just want to share with you as leaders uh, some warning signs of that so that you can be on the lookout for stress overload in your own with your own teams and 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 certainly for for yourselves and your families. Um, and so warning signs of stress overload, uh, what what we see as far as our thoughts, our thinking, how our, our thinking begins to be impacted um, is that um, people really you'll you'll hear people say, you know, I'm just I'm really foggy. Um, I'm not thinking as clearly as I usually do. Uh, you, there's a lot of indecisiveness. People are really challenged with um, making decisions. Um, and then uh, as that, um, you know, that stress response continues to kind of um, uh, rage in their bodies, what happens is that they simply begin to shut down emotionally. Um, they feel, they'll, you know, say they feel frozen. They're just not sure what to do next. Um, often people get um, um, on edge, they become impatient, they're short-tempered, they don't understand why you don't understand, they're so stressed. Um, and uh, really a hallmark symptom of this um, pathogenic stress that puts people at higher risk for mental and physical health condition, conditions and suppresses the immune system is nausea. Um, and so we, we know that people really will complain about um, stomach aches, um, they'll complain about headaches and muscle tension, but that nausea is really a hallmark somatic symptom of stress overload. And then in the later stages of stress overload, we see withdrawal and negative self-talk. And this is really what we want to look out, look out for. People who just want to be alone, who don't want to talk to anyone, um, and who begin to really take on um, what's happening as a failure of who they are. Um, and, and that's really a late stage warning sign of stress overload. I just wanna say that while the vast majority of us are managing um, acute stress and stress overload, those healthcare workers that are on the front lines of this pandemic, those long-term care workers who are really in the trenches of the of pandemic are at an increased risk for, for traumatic stress, certainly. It's something beyond stress overload. And as I talk to those employers, I talk to those leaders at healthcare systems, um, you know, the, those, um, those individuals are really experiencing um, something wholly different um, than what I'm discussing here today, certainly. And so I want to talk about, um, you know, uh, how is it that we practice um, uh, recovery in the context of this pandemic? And I've termed this radical recovery um, because what what's critically important here is dosage and what i mean by that is that as we um be, as we're managing this the, our own stress levels it really is about recovery and it's about prioritizing um our own 
um, moments of restoration and recovery. And that can feel radical in the midst of all that we're managing. Um, and what, what's important is that we do this often. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's the radical part for so many of us. Uh, and when I look at recovery, I like to talk about recovery in micro, daily, and, micro, and macro recovery. And micro is, is in some ways most critical right now with all that we're going through. And this is really proactive recovery. This is um, taking a few moments in the morning, um, doing whatever it is that grounds you, that, that helps you feel focused and empowered. For many people, that's exercise, that's getting outside, uh, it's, med it's meditation. Uh, for, for some people, it's just uh, organizing their day. And then spending five minutes every two hours um, in doing something you enjoy, stepping away and re restoring and recovering. And there's a lot of research around this frequency and this amount of time. Um, and, and what you do is, is, is really determined by what is it that really fills you up, what restores you. Um, and, that, and that's really what we're looking for. And daily recovery is really about restful sleep. It is core um, to protecting our emotional health during this time. And, and so uh, getting rid of electronics at night, doing a meditation prior to sleep. Um, if, if you are having difficulty sleeping, that is something to pay attention to. Focus on that and work towards sleep hygiene, work toward reaching out to your uh, primary care physician um, and, and work toward restful sleep. Um, what, what we know definitively um, from the research is that positive relationships, connectedness to one another is the most protective factor when it comes to our emotional health. So reaching out and connecting to people um, and making that a priority throughout your day. Um, and taking a day off. For me, 2020 has really represented what would it be like if all you had to do was work? Um, you really weren't going anywhere, weren't going on vacations. And so really stepping away from work for a full day. Um, and then macro recovery is really about taking that full week off um, and, and, um, and, and, just, and really um, recharging fully, um, which I think is particularly difficult to do in this time. Um, and, you know, I, I'll just end by saying that, you know, I, I think that um, as we all come through this pandemic, it, it, it really does bring people together. Um, and, it, and it allows us to have a conversation about our emotions, our emotional health, the challenges that we, we face, perhaps in a way that we've never had before. So thank, thank you so much, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of For Your Benefits. We'd like to thank Jennifer for such great insight into emotional health and how employers can ensure that they're providing the tools to help their employees during this pandemic. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the Century Health website at www.centuryhealth.com. And if you like what you heard today and want to learn more, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We'll continue to keep you on the cutting edge of what's happening in the world of corporate wellness. Until next time, thanks for joining us.